This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. Which boy band group? Like they just come in. Yeah. <laughs> they start singing the yes. right stuff. Yes. Uh, I think they would be singing "Bye Bye Bye" because yeah, they probably they're about to kill you. They're yeah. gonna kill you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so welcome to the Save or Die podcast. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm joined again, back again, by Carl. Hello, everybody. And we have a, a third amigo this time around. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, DM Ron to everyone. Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Ron, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, history with the game and kind of who you are? Okay. So uh, I guess I'm the gray beard of the group. Um, I hearken back to 1980 as the uh, first time I played uh, Dungeon Dragons. Uh, I actually remember being in eighth grade at the time and buddy brought um at that then it was the um first edition uh, dungeon master's guide um back from atlanta georgia he was on a trip and brought it back to new jersey and uh we delved into it and from that moment on it was uh every single day after school playing dungeon and dragons we migrated to uh the holmes edition and uh i am still dming to this day um dm'd every edition from basic all the way up even fourth edition? Well, even fourth edition. Uh, that one didn't last long. I did that um, for uh, uh, one of my brick and mortar stores in the area, uh, but we have a we have a solid fifth edition group going on right now. Hmm. All right, and then uh, Carl, I know you have something to kind of discuss real quick. I, I do have a few announcements. Um, the first is uh, my wife and I are starting Arkansas RPG Con. And that is October 21st of this year in central Arkansas in Benton. Uh, the website is arpgcon.com. So if you're in the area and want to check out a uh, role-playing game convention, uh, we would love to have you. It is not strictly old school focused, but we will have lots of old school games being ran there. Carl, we also have something else going on uh, in the near future as well, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yes, uh, DM Crispy and myself will be on Shane Plays Radio on October 14th. Uh, Shane Plays will be doing a radio show about the OSR and old school role playing in general. And we'll be on there to talk about that with him. Yeah, so that should be pretty good. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm a little, a little nervous. I've never been on the radio before. I've been on tech TV once. But never the radio. So that'll be that'll be interesting. Yeah, he has a, a radio show that goes out in the uh, central Arkansas area, and then he also uploads it as a podcast. So you mm. have two ways to find it. Yeah, and we'll leave a link to that when it when it happens and when it's up and things like that. Um, that should be. I'm not sure when he puts them up, but we should be doing that on uh, the 14th of October. So next month at some point. 
All right. And then uh, why don't you listen to these commercials, and we'll be right back with uh, our topic for this week, Undead Revisited. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Want to help support the show? Why not head over to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash WGP. That's patreon.com slash WGP. And help support the network for as little as $1.50 a month. That's right, $1.50 a month goes a long way. Thank you. If AD&D is number one, have we got a podcast for you. On the Roll for Initiative podcast, DMs Vince, Nick, and Matt. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and DM Matt. Hello, everyone. Check out all things related to the game that Gary built. This is basically the module trying to get you to fight things when you shouldn't. Yeah, it's they basically taunt you. They're being playful. Yeah. They're being playful. Yeah. They feature old and new modules, supplements, musings on rules, advice on DMing a game, and occasionally feature new writers and classic creators of all things 1E. And think of it this way. Number appearing, 2 to 12. 12 demigods hanging out together? Yes, but the green man has nothing underneath him as a classification. Zero. No. Nothing. No, just he's God of Growth and Abundance. We don't need to put down any other classification at all. We'll just give it to the mud man. That's the Roll for Initiative podcast. You can find it on iTunes or at RFIpodcast.com. So you like AD&D 2nd Edition but no podcast to listen to? Guess what? We got the cure right here. I got a fever. And the only prescription is the Thaco's Hammer Podcast. You want me to put the hammer down? Join DM's Glenn, Brian, Corey, and full-on gamer as they discuss, debate, and review the world of 2nd Edition AD&D. Yes. Go here. Give me a jit. Yeah, that's that's DM Corey ordering drinks. Sorry, sorry, girlfriend's getting gin. Rules, modules, supplements, clones, everything 2E is fair game. Someone lied to you, and there's an opposed role, and oh, they won, so you believe the lie. I know, but I don't, because I, the player, know that they lied to me. But mm -hmm. you, the character, have to act like you take the lie. So listen to a podcast where number two is number one. The Thaco's Hammer Podcast, the best damn second edition ADD podcast ever. You'll find it on iTunes or at Thaco'sHammer.info. So for this, real quick, just to kind of go through and and see, um, do we want to do like do we just want to like tackle this line by line here? Like our like go with the are undead the only creatures that have blanket immunities? Um, yeah, that'll, that'll go with my notes if we can do it that way. Okay. And then creatures that are similar to undead that do not qualify as undead. Oh, yeah, the shadow and the thule. And lichens. Lichens. I thought yeah. lichens were more yeah. werewolf. Well, they're can, they're not undead, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they have immunities. And uh, I, I, I think often they get misconstrued as undead. I mean, I think people interpret that disease. They certainly get blanketed in with them yeah. in those kind of horror themed modules and horror themed right. fiction. Okay. You know, the the undead and the and the werewolves, vampires and werewolves, and you, you see that often where they're represented together. Right. I thought maybe we make the distinction that they're not, they're living. Just like the Thule is living. And uh Shadow's an interesting one because I'm not sure why that's not undead. To screw the players. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Lichen. I'm gonna find the lichen real quick. 
Yeah, so they should have were rat, but were boar, werewolf. Yeah, and those do the werewolves ha- uh, like have the um, resistances, not resistances, but like those immunities as well. In uh, um, they not in, sleep, but uh, magic and silver weapons okay. to to damage. All right, right, not to sleep because well, that's why it makes sense, right? Yeah. Um. <laughs> the were shark. That's the. <laughs> Actually, no. The I was like the stupidest thing ever. But now I'm thinking about the were shark, and I was like, "Nah, that's pretty cool." <laughs> <laughs> I think the boule is the actual land shark, right? It is, yeah. But the were shark is the SNL skit version. <laughs> Walking out to the door. There's also uh. <laughs> A little-known variant of the land shark, the street shark. That's a not joke for con- if you're 30. Not to, not to be confused with the card shark. Ah. <laughs> uh, I know those guys. I'm trying to... All uh, right, here. I was trying to keep that train going, but I, like, ran out of sharks. I ran out of the. I wanted to do something with like the sharker image, but it, it just couldn't work. It, I couldn't get there. Sure. So we yeah, set up a a sea boulet. <laughs> Going getting on topic, I guess. Uh, getting back on topic here. So yeah, undead uh, do have a lot of immunities in the uh, in the game. In I know in AD and D at least, um, there's that thing where like. They only take half damage from anything that's not a blunt weapon. Is that part of original D and D? Let's go to Skelly. Mode. I don't believe so. I don't yeah, believe I don't, the don't rules so. for for uh, damage resistance for skeletons yeah. ever presents itself in basic D and D. I don't think we see that through any of the editions at all. Yeah, I I don't see that in um, in Swords and Wizardry. I'm gonna look and see in OD and D if it's in there as well, but. I thought that was the case, that it, it's something that came about through AD&D, when they were like, more rules. Right, it's, yeah, it's not in homes. <laughs> Which is kind of nice. I, I, I like that sort of, um, that faster and looser, like, oh no, Harryhausen Skellingtons, and then, you know, you, you fight them with swords. I like the, uh, the aesthetic of the Argonauts, you know, with their... I want to say Kopeshes and like Gladii, but that's very anachronistic. Um, <laughs> fighting, I guess it's a Harryhausen movie, so it's yeah. fine. Um, fighting the skeletons and still being able to to, to fight them. Um, you guys have seen that. Uh, <laughs> there's that image. I, I'm pretty sure it's actually taken from a D&D module of uh, a skeleton like standing on a really defiant pose and uh, mm-hmm. there's a fighter poking like a spear through his ribs. The right. caption is, uh, first of all, it's you're a- being a dick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, that image is actually from Dungeon Crawl Classics. Oh, is um, it? Okay. So those are peasants. That's why he has a pitchfork. So he's he's not able to catch him. Yeah. He's on either side of his pitchfork. I I laugh every time I see that. It just, it gets me. And that's a miss on the roll. <laughs> How did I miss him? Uh, he went right through his ribcage. Yeah, yeah. I, is that something you guys do in your basic games? Like, um, 
specifically with skeletons, if you're if people are firing arrows at skeletons, is there like say just on a regular miss, does it just go through their rib cages or like you know the uh, just all the different like just barely misses parts of it? Uh, typically speaking, I don't I don't have any like I don't even use fumbles like I don't use mm-hmm. natural. I don't I don't have any of the the kind of uh uh damage the players more for a, yeah. for a miss. I'm, I'm in the same boat actually. Like um I would be more likely if I was going to add a to it uh concerning like bludgeonings versus archery versus swords. I I would add a rule that bludgeonings do more damage okay. instead of taking damage away from um the other players. The effect is Fairly similar, but causes less hurt feelings. Yeah, I just meant on like a miss. Like, is that how you describe yeah. your misses? Uh, I, I mean, I tend to provide narrative. Um, I, I guess at key moments, um, I do use fumbles. I do, you know, and crits, um, especially to you know narrate during that time. I think it just provides uh, some mo- you know monumental moments, um, some rememberable rememberable things that happen in the game. So uh, I don't use them every single time a die is rolled, but occasionally I'll throw it in there. Okay. Yeah, my um, and I don't know if this is where Carl also started this, but my like propensity against fumbles and even critical hits actually actually came from Mike Stewart uh, on an episode on the show where he's like, yeah, well, if you look at the original game, like. Rolling a six on the die is gonna be your critical hit. Not to be super self-referential, um, <laughs> with like, oh, there was this one time on this show that you're listening to where somebody said a good thing, but I feel like that was it's a different enough cast to be like, oh yeah, like I learned this from this person. Um, my 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 approach is different. I actually include critical hits but do not include fumbles. And the reason I don't include fumbles is because it can become this kind of like comedy show where like, okay, this breaks or this drops or this. um, And, and uh, uh, with critical hits, what I do um, is I actually make critical hits be full damage plus a damage die. Yeah. So, what what happens then is you don't roll a one. You go, oh, it was a critical hit. You did two yeah. damage. You know, uh, it, it feels kind of silly. But if you make it just full damage, then then every every hit has the, the possibility of being a critical. Yeah, my my take on it is uh, if I I leave it up to the players. So I don't like critical hits because they're normally fighting more. Like they're normally outgunned or not outgunned and outnumbered with monsters, so there's more of a chance for monsters to roll a critical hit. And you know, it's I'm I'm running like swords and wizardry, so you're going to die if that happens. You have a d4. Your wizard has a d4 hit die, and your monsters are rolling d8s to hit. Like it's mm, uh, statistically, you're probably gonna. You're going to kick the can pretty easily. Um, I always leave it up to them, though. And uh, I will always go, okay, like, if you... And if they choose to do it, my rule is it's just max damage. But I don't use fumbles because I don't like the idea of failing backwards. Um, I think failure is its own its own punishment. So if you miss, you miss. And that, that sucks already. Like, I, I don't think that you should 
punish failure because failure is already its own punishment. I also don't like, th- I don't know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of failing forward if you do fail or um, I, I hate failing backwards, which I, I think a lot of uh, like White Wolf did a lot from what I saw where it's like you succeed too hard and now a bad thing happens. And it's like, that's stupid. Why am you punishing me for doing a good thing? Well, I, I agree with Carl in that I think it does, um, unfortunately, provide uh, quite a bit of comedic uh, moments. But what do you guys do in the situation where, you know, uh, I don't know, a monster has someone embraced and someone shoots an arrow? Um, I mean, are there any times that you use uh, a potential die roll um, to make the players more wary, I guess? Does oh, yeah, definitely. Like, if you're going to go and shoot an arrow at somebody... Um, who, like, <laughs> if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna try to John McClane your way out of this one, where Hans Gruber, uh, Hans Gruber is the name of my very powerful lich character, <laughs> uh, has your, uh, has your wife hostage and you have to, like, take that shot, um, I, I think that there should be a very serious, like, you might hit your wife kind of thing. Yeah, well, for example, last night in our campaign, we had um, Strahd was feeding on one of the player characters, and um, the player decided to swing his warhammer at Strahd, and he called Strahd's face, and I'm like, you know, if this goes bad, it's really going to go bad. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's... that's, uh one thing I like to do is make sure that when someone's trying this situation out and they, they uh, uh, say, I'm going to shoot an arrow at this guy, even though he's holding this person, I, I will let them in on the mechanics of that. So what I don't like is kind of gotcha surprises. I, oh, yeah, I might definitely. be a little bit of a soft hand DM compared to some, but I don't, I don't like the numbers to, I, I want that to be aware to the players what the numbers are going to look like yeah before rolling the die so um so i'll even say like there's a a 50 chance that this is going to hit your friend instead of them and let them know what just the numbers are because i think hiding the numbers is kind of a uh, it's kind of a bs move hiding the numbers is an exercise in futility Hmm. is what i was trying to say because i think all these efforts to hide numbers from the players to kind of immerse them more or create tension i think what happens is the players who have the tendency to think about the game in numbers are still doing it yeah i i agree actually that's really interesting um i i know a lot of like old school dms i guess maybe it was like the uh Maybe it was, like, the the method to do it where you would hide, like, it's a sword plus two with a plus three against goblins. And, like, you know, then you fight some goblins. It's like, oh, you're doing really well. And sort of keying you into that. With me, I'm just like, it's a plus two sword. It has plus three against goblins. Now I don't have to worry about these numbers because I have a lot of pieces of paper floating around in front of me, and I'm maybe not going to remember that all the time. About... Two years ago, I ran a game as an experiment where the players knew nothing other than if they were strong or healthy or smart, but they didn't know what their actual stats were, what their hit points were. Um, You know, they knew how good armor was just because if you know the rules, you pretty much know that. Um, 
but the numbers weren't in front of them at all. They knew their character's name and, and a general idea of how good they were. I had their character sheets behind my screen. Mm -hmm. um, so I rolled all the dice, kept up with all the numbers. They knew if they were hurt badly. Um, you know, they knew if they thought they were strong enough to achieve something, uh, but they would still be uh, a general idea of what they're capable of doing, not a numeric effect. I also ran an experiment much more recently where all the dice were on the table. I would actually roll the monster's hit points on a small die and put it next to their miniature. Huh. And it was much more video gamey in presentation. Um, for what it's worth, I enjoyed both sessions. Um, so I think there's really no wrong way to do it. In my oh, opinion. absolutely it's not. Just, it's just the, uh, the communication up front of how you do it. I think yeah. is most important. I think for me, I, uh, and this is no secret if you've been listening to the show for a long time, I uh, am extremely lazy when it comes to DMing. <laughs> and that's something that, like, I've talked about on this very show several times, where it's like, I don't want to do that. I just want to make it up. Like, I don't even like variable weapon dice. If if you go, everything does a D6, I go, that's perfect. Give me that. I That's what I want to do. Um, that way I don't have to worry about, like, there's like the weird min maxing of like, I could use I could use a two handed sword and that does two d six plus one, which is it's got a better higher average damage. But my character is a barbarian from like an axe wielding country, but that only does a d twelve, so that has a lower uh lower average damage. Yeah, and it's like I don't want to deal with that or you know like. In Holmes, like we had talked about this uh, earlier in the week, not apropos of any kind of show, on our Discord, which you should all join. Uh, I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Um, I was talking with some people about running the game as uh, with the chainmail rules. Like it's a. Th if you've ever done this, I actually do want to hear from you. Um, if you can write us in at questions at saverdie.info. Um, I was looking at chainmail. And um, I think I talked with you about this, Carl. Um, yes. A lot of the weird rules that are in D&D, like in Holmes, you know, daggers being able to attack twice a round, but two-handed swords only being able to attack once every other round. That comes from the weapon class rules in Chainmail. And it, like, I, I want to run a game using Chainmail as the combat system. Or I want to hear about how it works out, because um, Chainmail is, it's a little dense. It's a dense book, and I am not a war gamer. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's like those sort of min-maxi things of like, oh, why would I ever, why would I ever choose anything other than a dagger if I get to attack twice around with it? Um, is, I, I, I just like it simplified. I like very simple combat, you know everyone picks a side maybe there's some tactics involved let's get back on the topic of undead because this has been a really good conversation but it's not the conversation we're supposed to be having forgive so us the, listeners at home it's it's a new cast we're kind of getting to know each other so as we bring in things it's going to be like oh this is the first time i'm hearing about this from this person so we we kind of veered off from the subject i don't think we ever talked about it um Undead being the only creatures to have kind of blanket immunities, weaknesses, and abilities. You know, all mm -hmm. undead are immune to sleep. That's just a function of being undead and immune to charm, and they can all be turned. Um, and I think uh, uh, Ron said uh, lycanthropes are a, 
a reference to another creature type that does have kind of blanket rules. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're usually only available at nighttime, and they're um, uh, they're targeted by silver and magic weapons, but immune to normal damage. But that's yeah. the only other one I can think of that has kind of a blanket. Uh, yeah, I mean, like that's kind it. of the only so undead and and lycanthrope. I guess like slimes or mold, like yeah. jellies and things like that. Those are really the only like types, like overarching type of monster. Um, actually, gargoyles um are immune to sleep and charm, right? <laughs> and uh, again, there's that misnomer that they have a little bit of uh, a quality to them, although uh, you know more uh, magical than anything else. And uh, outside of undead, um, living statues, golems. Okay. There, they have blanket immunities as well. Sleep, yeah. charm, and that's gold. interesting because later on in the game, all of those things, except maybe gargoyles, ended up falling under a blanket construct type. Correct. So right. all undead were constructs; they were created, um, and that's how they get those immunities. So it's interesting that they kind of took those existing rules and like made them made that like a blanket. Like here, here's here's how this gets applied. Yeah, I think a lot of the progression of the game was just ways of making it more communicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, it's just a, a rules term now instead of a, a folklore term. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like the we lycanthropes are also one of the ones that get tied in with this because we were talking about this before the show. But lycanthropes aren't undead, but they get roped in with a lot of horror. Um, like modules or hor- even horror movies, I guess. I, I I know a lot of D and D takes from you know it takes from movies and comics of the of the era. Um, you know, those like weird tales or like um, uh, creep show, those sort of things. And that's probably why Gary had originally included them. I mean, that would be my guess. Well, the similarity um, again, you know, the 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 misnomer between um undead and uh, lycanthropes of uh, the vampire you know draining blood the person theoretically in movies dies a horrible painful death to be resurrected as an undead being and you have that lichen piece too where you know they're bit they go through this horrible transformation they're po- you know they're, they're poisoned by the curse um, and so I, I think that's why the similarity is there Although, you know, as we expressed, uh, lycanthropes aren't undead. But I think that's why you get that confusion sometimes from some people. Yeah. That was um, one thing that uh, I had researched um, before the show is a vampire bites you, you become a vampire. A werewolf bites you, you become a werewolf. In D&D, if a zombie bites you, it just really hurts. You don't become a zombie. Um, and kind of as I was going through, I, I, I actually looked into this. Um, what had brought it up is skeletons and zombies are almost essentially the same undead creature. I think um, zombies are a little sturdier. Um, that's just probably because they have flesh. But um, zombies in D&D have never, ever been, aside from um, like house rules or variant rules, have never been like the Romero zombie, the infectious undead. Um, typically, they're they're like voodoo zombies, um, the zombies that you can you can give an order to and make them do something. Um, and I went through and I looked, 
at every zombie movie made before like 1974. And aside from the George Romero undead uh, movies, every piece of zombie media was always voodoo zombies. So I think it's really interesting that like when you look at the zombie in D and D, if you're if you're my age or a little bit younger, and they're not you know they're not the bite you and you become one kind of Walking Dead or like Dead Rising, Dawn of the Living Dead kind of zombie. There's a weird disconnect there, but I just thought it was an interesting piece of history that if you look at every every single zombie movie before um. Before 1968, they're all voodoo zombies, and that's the that's why Romero, zombies work the way that they work. Romero kind of redefined the term. Um, there's no mention of uh, zombie in 1968, Night of the Living Dead, uh, but he does use the term quite often. Um, but the the imagery was so succinct to to the already existing word of zombie. Uh, these slow-moving, shambling creatures um, that I think it just kind of picked up steam. There's actually only one line in any uh, past uh, uh, pre-Land of the Dead Romero zombie movie that uses the word zombie, and it's in Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. Um, So he avoids the word, but the word kind of became attached to his uh, work, and now it's it's really become... um, pervasive you yeah. know when you say zombie people don't think of voodoo culture at all no they think they think of some sort of virus that reanimates the dead yeah um i prefer in dungeons and dragons my zombies to be magical constructs or or some sort of minion to a, a higher uh, magical power i don't even though i love zombie movies i don't yeah. like that type of zombie in my fantasy gaming and it's interesting that like so I just brought up the Wikipedia page for Ghoul just to kind of get to the folklore of it. Romero's absolutely, like, 100% in a technical sense, correct for what his zombies are. So this is, I'm, I'm reading for Wikipedia, this is not any, like super scholarly thing, but a ghoul is, it's a quote, a ghoul is a monster or evil spirit in Arabic mythology associated with graveyards and consuming human flesh. Like, that's Romero's spot on. He's 100% correct with what he's saying. One thing to keep in mind about uh, Nine Living Dead, George Romero, uh, uh, originally it was just titled Monster Movie because they just wanted to make a movie. Um, And at one point it was vampires. At one point it was aliens. Uh, It owes a lot of its look and feel to The Last Man on Earth, uh, which was a Vincent Price movie Mm -hmm. based on the book. Yeah, I am Um, legend. I am legend. Right. Um, and uh, so the only he's actually been quoted to say the only reason my zombies aren't vampires is because then I would feel like I'd be ripping off. I am legend and last man on earth completely. Yeah. Um, so uh, the term ghoul was probably just picked up to differentiate uh, from from existing works. Maybe. Yeah. He may not have gone through and been like, what's like a Arabic folklore monster. Encyclopedia Britannica. They were trying to figure out what the weaknesses would be for, for the zombies in I Living Dead. And one of the actresses suggested a pie in the face, uh, jokingly. And that's why in Dawn of the Dead, there's that large sequence where they're pieing zombies in the <laughs> face. 
uh, as an homage to that actress's quip. That's really dumb. I love that. <laughs> so they were having fun is all I'm trying yeah. to say. <laughs> so kind of going back through our notes real quick, we kind of covered influences for what Undead were included. Again, I, I think it's it's popular culture. Like, it absolutely right. is. Like, the ghoul, and, and Gary was a big encyclopedia nerd as well. Like, he, you know, he, he would definitely be the guy who would go through and be like, what's, what's an Arabic undead monster from folklore that I can include. Um, but yeah, for like zombies and skeletons and vampires and, and I guess werewolves because we're, we need to include those. You know, he definitely pulled from, from monster comics and monster movies. Um, skeletons more than likely the Harryhausen, um, like, was it, was it Sinbad? I think we had talked about that. No, Jason uh, of the Argonauts. Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. When we were doing our original, um, research for the show like definitely jason's the argonauts yeah he even um i think he directly references under the entry for um white he like just flat out mentions lord of the rings like barrow white you see that in Holmes a lot, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, I probably you probably would see it in Chainmail. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, it's in it's in Monsters and Treasures. Uh, right. Whites, okay. Barrow Whites, per Tolkien, are nasty right. creatures who drain life away uh, in energy levels when they score a melee hit. All right, what I'm thinking of is uh, uh, Wraiths in, oh, yeah, uh, ring in Holmes. Mm. Holmes are, are are mentioned as derivative of Nazgul. Okay. And that probably makes sense. I would I would look and see like if there, I guess wraiths could also be like banshees and things like that. In um, so sort of if you want to blanket that 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 topic. Yeah, I think when uh, one thing we haven't even uh, talked about is uh, the one of the things about undead is we have essentially uh, corporeal undead without a conscience. Mm-hmm. And then incorporeal undead, which are thinking creatures, but out of body. And then the most powerful types of undead seem to be the ones that have both. Mm-hmm. You know, vampires both have a physical form and a mental capacity, uh, as do mummies and liches. Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, so it's almost like we have the body without a soul, the soul without a body, but the most powerful undead is the one that has both. Yeah. No, I definitely, I, I think that's a really, like, really salient point. Um, and those, I mean, liches and, and vampires and I guess mummies, but I, I personally never used a mummy before because it's just like, they have torches and I'm just like real world application, just like <laughs> poke them with your fire stick. I don't and use problem uh, solved. mummies. I don't use mummies, vampires or werewolves in any of my games. Really? Really? I don't use any of them because I feel like. It, it pulls it away from the type of theme I want in my games. Okay. Being this kind of uh, uh, medieval fantasy, Lord of the Rings inspired uh, type of game and pulls it towards horror. And uh, mm. I like horror. I love horror movies. I love zombie movies. But I, I don't want my horror peanut butter in my fantasy chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ron, I think I'm safe in assuming you're the opposite. I am. Um, I, I, I love fantasy games, uh, you know, so don't get me wrong. I mean, um, you know, we we run typical 
uh, fantasy genre uh, type campaigns. But uh, I love the horror genre, so uh, I've run quite a few horror campaigns. Um, the problem with horror campaigns is, you know, and I'm sure you guys have discussed it before, is keeping that that tension, uh, that suspense. And, you know, we talked about, you know, the critical fumbles and those and the levity that gets brought in the game. So it's always difficult. Um, but I have used uh, werewolves. I've, you know, done uh, player um, searches for cures and uh, done things in that, that area. And, uh, you know, Obviously, Strahd, uh, probably one of my favorite NPCs of all time. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely used horror in my campaign. Yeah. Just as an aside, I'll, I'll edit this out, but did you want to mention that you used to go by DM Strahd? <laughs> sure, if you want all me right. to. <laughs> I thought you might be going there. Yeah, but I wanted to, like, I didn't know if that was, like, a secret past. Like, everything I did on the internet from, like, 14 to 20, like, <laughs> I've been just actively working to bury that stuff. So I didn't know yeah. if you were in that boat as well. No, no, no. Um, yeah, so, like, yeah, you used to be DM Strahd beforehand. And I, you're running, uh, are you currently running Curse of Strahd? Is that your, your, in your in-person game? Yeah, we just concluded that last night, as a matter of fact. Um, so uh, we're going on to, to other things. But I have, uh, I've been a fan of um, Ravenloft since its uh, incarnation. Um, and I know that's second edition, um, or, well, if you go back to the first edition module. But yeah. um, I just found that, you know, that uh, just the way they spoke to um, a vampire as, as a, um, a major villain in an NPC and, um, you know, the just how much they brought that to life so uh i echoed that in the beginning of the days of the internet i think on dial up i was probably dm strad uh there may be another dm strad out there i think that i eventually became the real dm strad at one point but <laughs> i've let that uh go and now i go by demi corn in most circles yeah i uh and i'm actually i'm running in a uh i'm going to be playing in Curse of Strahd, literally right after this, at like uh, around huh. 6.30 my time. It's like 4 now, so in a couple hours. Um, I have not gotten anywhere near it. But yeah, and I think it's interesting, those most powerful undead, the, the liches and the vampires, like, those are the, the no-joke undead. Like, your lich and your vampire are going to be the, the main antagonist of an entire campaign. Because of just how crazy powerful they can get, you know, your, your vampires in the original rules here. Let's take a look here. So Carl was kind enough for us in our research to compile all this info. And so I'm going to kind of take a look at what vampires can do. Um, I know like liches, you know, they're they're super high level magic users. So you've got like a 15th level wizard that is also a zombie and can you know hit you and, and make you real cold right yeah, with they're, powerful they're listed, immunities they're mm -hmm. listed as a minimum 12th level yeah. minimum 12th level and uh average 18th level that is a yeah that is a high level wizard <laughs> that's your ninth level spells as well like i think 17th level is ninth level spells um so you know this, this is a uh this is this is a skelly man who can also cast wish. Right. <laughs> and has been around forever, so you know, he probably has every spell in his spell book. Or at least the vast majority of them. Yeah, that's right. that's and I was saying that both those so not only are they undead, they carry the immunities, 
uh, of the undead class, mm -hmm. but they've leveled them up. Uh, you know, they've given the lich spellcasting ability, so now it's hard to hit any really you know gives a wallop and with vampires i mean the level drain combined with uh and a lot of these additions how difficult it is to kill them yeah uh so that makes them the perfect um foil for yeah they adventure. regenerate as as trolls they can summon 10 to 100 rats or bats um or and just like a couple packs of wolves um they have charm abilities they they charm men types merely by looking into their eyes so you just you know your your fighter you're you know say you're you're fighting the the vampire and it's your i don't know let's say ninth level fighter now he's he's turned against he's turned against the whole party and they're boss monsters so they have you know like it's it would not be outside of the um Outside of the realm of imagination, especially if you're pulling from folklore, that the vampire is going to have different thralls with him as well. You know, he's going to have lower level undead serving him. He's going to have men that he's charmed into being his like his retainers. He he's going to have a small army, you know. Um, and that's going and killing that guy who's been terrorizing the countryside is that's a whole adventure. That's a whole module. And and it is it historically is. Um, I'm trying to think here. What else do we have on the, on the lich? Well, did you guys notice that in your um, I mean, in the research and looking at the lich through the basic edition, I think everybody always associates the lich with the phylactery. Um, I think that's the you know common consensus, mm -hmm. and it doesn't appear in any of the basic editions. That's actually a first edition add-on. Really. Um, yeah, it's uh, in all of the versions. It doesn't appear. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, at some points, I think it was in the um, uh, the Eldritch Wizardry that um, when they were talking about the um, Vecna and the and the eye and uh, and the hand of Vecna. Yeah, the um, hand is his phylactery in Eldritch yeah, Wizardry. Yeah, uh, but in that very in that sentence, it says it's 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 odd. It says and. Uh, at that point, it says that the hand may even outlast um, the body, but it, it wasn't until the, the first edition that they actually mentioned the word uh, phylactery, um, huh. and that that appears that they got that uh, Gary got that from uh, Russian folklore. Um, there was a guy named uh, Kostjai the Deathless, and um, that story was the first time that the wizard actually uh, put his soul. In a, uh, in a in an item um, to hide it. Um, it was funny about that, which, uh, by the way, is uh, something maybe you should do with a lich. Um, so the story goes that uh, he put his soul in a needle, and then the needle was hidden in an egg, and then the egg was hidden in a duck, and then the duck was hidden in a hare, and then the hare was hidden in an iron-bound chest, which was buried in under an oak tree, which was on an island, in a vast ocean um so it shows you you know what level a, a lich would go to to make sure that his soul isn't um isn't found i just love like <laughs> yeah it the, makes this is like basically a matrioska doll <laughs> yes yes yeah there you go <laughs> yep it makes me want to create a, a variant uh lich the turducken lich i just <laughs> i was working lich. on how to pull that in yep 
Yep, that's exactly what I thought when I read it. Though. <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah, the the rab duckin is uh, that's that's what I'm having for Thanksgiving this year." <laughs> so yeah, I was surprised to find. I mean, I had always associated the lich with the phylactery, and yeah. apparently at the beginning he was just a, a an undead wizard. Um, I, I think that you know Gary got some of his influences from Clark Ashton uh, Smith. Um, but I think the big one was Gardner Fox, um, where uh, in the Sword of the Sorcerer, uh, Kothar uh, gets the Frostfire Sword from what they called a living dead wizard. And I think that's kind of where the Lich, you know, started from. Hmm. Yeah, in, in, uh, in Greyhawk, where it's introduced, it says that they're alive only by means of great spells and will because of being in some way disturbed. So it's... Uh, it leaves it very open, which is one of the strengths of, of classic basic D&D, where, where things are kind of more at play to being moved around. Yeah, I've definitely um, I've definitely used different methods for creating a lich than than just putting your soul into like a necklace and hiding that necklace like um, it could be something like a, you could have the magical artifact like you could have the lich book, which is a cursed book that, you know, details the uh the method for how to to become a lich, but it is also the phylactery. Yeah, the um, Dragon Twenty Six is when uh, Len Kafka wrote the article on uh, becoming a lich, and he had the whole formula. Mm-hmm. Lich, and he mentions the phyla- well, he doesn't call it a phylactery there too. He calls it the uh, soul receptacle. Um, but there, uh, it can't be just a common item, uh, according to that article. Uh, it had to be an art item of great value. Yeah. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I, I think I, I disagree like the- with that. I I think it's smarter to hide it in plain yeah. sight. Yeah. Like, make your phylactery just like a, a pebble in a gravel pit right. and just toss it away. Or a needle in a duck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always been like that's the been the thing in kind of D and D popular culture is the the phylactery is is always either with the lich or it's something like ostentatious. It's like no, if you're smart, you're gonna make it something that no one will ever be able to find. Yeah, ever. it reminds me of the Indiana Jones Last Crusade um, goblet. Yeah, right? the cup. The yeah, Jesus was just a carpenter, like so. Of yeah. course the the plain one is going to be, but yeah, everyone thinks, Oh no, he was the, he's the King of Kings. So, you know, he's of course, of course, God has the best cup. Apologize to any Christians. I, I do not mean to demean your religion. I have a lich I run in my games. That is a cult leader and his phylactery is his cultists. So he has the more cultistic and they're, fairly innocent beings he's not presenting himself as this evil person who wants to take over the world so the players now either have to disillusion these cultists or you know make the decision to take out otherwise innocent people oh they have to like destroy their belief in him right they have to like they have to proselytize and be like hey here's why your religion is is dumb they would have to prove to them that this guy is actually an evil entity and not uh, the the flower and 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 uh, tambourine. Oh, guy that's that I think he is really interesting. Actually, what I like about Dungeons and Dragons in general is the idea of taking fantasy tropes and turning them on their head. So if you have a lich who's like really nice and trying to get all of his uh, 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 followers to to believe in him, and he's singing uh, peacenik songs, it 
but he's actually really just this terrible, horrible creature. Oh yeah, he like I was gonna ask is he at is like is he actually just a nice guy or is he like on the down low committing uh, atro- atrocities? Yeah, he's awful. He's just an awful human being. Uh, 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 so I, I like that because you, I have another lich I just introduced in a Swords and Wizardry light game I'm playing, which doesn't have a lich in it, but who cares? Um, uh, that is a nice guy lich. He's actually a genuinely nice person. I just happens to have become a lich somehow. Um, <laughs> just like, uh, he's like, so hey, buddy. The wrong potion. So he's basically been a lich for thousands of years, just providing for his descendants. Huh. So all of all of his family, his extended family, live in his castle with him. And it's just a well-maintained castle. Yeah. And that's uh, that's something I wanted to segue into is um, your liches. Are they always super evil? Like, I like the idea of it's just like just a real like just a, a wizard nerd, just a, a huge <laughs> wizard geek who's like, <laughs> it's like that Twilight Zone episode where uh, everyone on Earth dies except that one guy and he can finally read. It's like, there's finally time now. Um, where it's just like someone who's obsessed with unlocking as many secrets of the universe as they can, but they're right. like, oh, I'm going to die. I should probably put a stop to that. It'll really cut in my sitting around time. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that it's it's just open to your world how you want to present it. I think in in theory the idea is the act to become a lich is so disgusting and evil that only an evil person would do it. But when you're running D and D, your campaign is is you are the author at your table. You you decide uh, what it takes to become a lich. And uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, I so- guess theoretically, it's because liches can be uh, either magic users or clerics. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in theory, you could run a campaign based on you know a disease that has crippled a kingdom, and uh, this wizard has sold his soul to find the cure. Right through magic. Mm-hmm. Huh. And so his quest for you know finding the cure is the is that lich piece of uh, you know I'll trade um, my soul for eternal life and attempt to uh, you know to to discover the magic that can fix the ills of the kingdom. That they become a martyr figure in that story. Yeah, and that's the thing is like I think like a lich should have some kind of mission. Maybe like um, maybe there's some kind of great mystery that no one knows the truth of, and he's you know it's there's tons and tons of research to do and tons of tons of of inquiries with different extraplanar like beings and and deities and things like that and. It, it consumes this wizard or or even a cleric, an inquisitor who's trying to figure out where the first vampire came from. And uh, he's trying to get to the bottom of it. And maybe he uh, he has to sell his soul to become a, a, a lich cleric in order to uh, in order to solve this mystery. That would be a really tragic thing. Like the lich cleric, that's one you don't really see very often. Um Especially if you go back with what we talked about last episode, where clerics are monster hunters, them becoming the monster in order to better perform their job, that's like, there's some meat to that. Just in like a dramatic, I guess more of like a, in a storytelling way than mechanical, but... 
All right, and I think that's going to uh, wrap up our show for this week, actually. Um, before we go, we actually did receive an email on last month's uh, on last month's episode uh, that we're going to kind of respond to real quick, uh, just kind of a quick addendum to our last episode. Uh, this comes from DM Chuck. Chuck writes, Hi, guys. I just listened to the show on Clerics, and I must say it was very well done. Thank you. Despite... Despite this, there were two topics you did not cover. First, I was wondering if you follow the rule that restricts certain magic items for each class. For example, are clerics the only class that can use a Staff of Healing? Uh, are they prevented from using a Wand of Fireballs? To me, these, these restrictions give a class a niche and give players a reason to play them. My next question is, how do you DM when the party does not have a cleric? Does the group find more healing potions than normal? Can they hire a cleric henchman? Or must they just live with the fact that their party has a deficiency? Uh, thanks for saving the show, Chuck. So on that first note, we did kind of talk about uh, class restrictions. I had mentioned that I am for them when we talked about things like, um, especially in classic D&D, usually only in classic D&D for me, where um, I, I I agree with him. It, it gives more incentive to play a cleric. So we talked more in terms of non-edged weapons, um, and he's talking more about magic items uh for me i i think yes um that they should be in place you know if they're the only ones who can use the staff of healing which which makes sense i would say yes let's keep that restriction wanda fireballs i wouldn't let a fighter use a wanda fireballs i a thief would have their ability to activate a magic item but yeah wands would be a wizard only kind of thing um that's where i stand on it ron where, where do you stand uh, in the middle, um, I, I guess I, I have this, you know, being the, uh, the gray beard, um, I have this old school, um, that the reason those, uh, limitations are put in places so that there's, and, and I don't want to necessarily say game balance, but, um, you know, so that there's, there's, um, specialties to each of the classes. Um, mm -hmm. but that being said, I mean, the, there are a few of them I can go either way on. Uh, the Staff of Healing being one of them. And later in Moldvay and Menser, <clears throat> it doesn't have a distinction uh, for the Staff of Healing. And uh, I mean, I, I think that the normal items that we would call uh, specific, the Staff of Power should only go to a wizard, right? The Book of Infinite Spells, Vile Darkness, those type of things. Um, but I'm looking at, or, you know, Gauntlets of Ogre Power, Fighter. Uh, I'm looking at the Cloak of Protection. I mean, I, there are some I just don't see as a reason um, for a particular class to use. And uh, I, I find that it becomes difficult when you're, you know, you're running a campaign and one of your players finds a, a wand of uh, metal detection and uh, you need to only operate it by a certain class. I mean, there are just some of the items in there I, I don't think need to, to be class specific. So I'm, I'm in the middle. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. Like, if someone made an argument for, like, the Staff of Healing or Gauntlets of Ogre Power on a wizard, to me, is really cool. I would al I would allow that, personally. But, yeah, I, I think, like, I say no, but it's always a case-by-case -case basis. And, yeah, and the, po the potions didn't make any sense at all, to be honest with you. I mean, you drink a potion Yeah, if you have a mouth, work. you can use a potion. So... I think that's uh, the heart of it is it's a kind of a per table per situation ruling for me. Um, to me, my job as a game master is I am playing a chess game with the concept of fun. Hmm. Um, and so 
if there's a situation where it, it both makes sense and helps the game that this wand could be used by non-wizards or this uh, cleric magic item could be used by a non-cleric, um, then I would work that into my game if I thought it improved the, the situation of the game. Um, one thing I've done before uh, is have a very non um it was actually a halfling thief it was a it was actually in a non-classic game but it was a halfling thief um get granted this favor of this goddess so it put the halfling thief in a very difficult spot but it opened up a lot of opportunities for them uh that wouldn't have been available hmm. you, you talked about carl being the uh i guess um you know the the arbitrator of fun, uh, the DM who is making sure the players are, are enjoying themselves. I mean, how do you deal with if you stick to their strict requirements? Um, you know, not all groups. I mean, I've, I've I've had groups that you know collect treasure, share it amongst the group, make sure that the right classes use the right treasure, and I've had the opposite uh, where players you know are the first to discover this trap or uh, the first to you know to be on scene for the chest and. Um, you know, they solve the puzzle or the riddle, and it's, I mean, it's difficult telling them that they can't use the item that they got, right? I mean, how do you handle that? Well, to me, um, uh, the first rule uh, at, at my table is I, I, I mention all this stuff ahead of time. I, I give a little, like, uh, uh, announcer of my DM style. I'm the hand-waviest DM you ever uh, played with. Um the, the rules are secondary to the fun. But when I say the fun, I do mean uh, fun with, with, with uh, a challenge. So I don't think you can have an enjoyable game. Well, I, I won't say that. I don't enjoy a game without a challenge. Um, hmm. And I think a game is more enjoyable when there is threat of death and uh, 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 the possibility of bad stuff happening to you. Um, so... With that going in, if I were to set up a situation where, uh, say, someone did the work to find the the treasure and it wasn't a item they could use, then based on that character's desire to use that item, I would present them with the option. Like, say it was, um, say it was a dwarf, and the dwarf found the the mace of Saint Cuthbert. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were just like, man, I really want to use the main Mace of St. Cuthbert. That'd be awesome. And I was like, well, here's your options then. You can find a temple to St. Cuthbert and see what you have to do to get that to work for you. And that leads us into the next quest. And that makes the narrative come from the desire of the player. Yeah, and that's... I think when you let that push the narrative, it makes them become invested in a way that if you're just presenting the narrative as, as the story that you have planned out, they will never be as invested in. Oh my God. Thank you. Like I've, I cannot get my group to wrap their head around that for me. It's like, no, like, and I, I this isn't my bio for my other podcast, critical wits where it's like, no, the player should drive the story. It should be about what they want to do. It shouldn't just be me going like, uh, here's the story. What do you do? It should be like, Oh, what do you want to do? Oh, well, I, I want to find this magic sword that will help me take back my kingdom. Oh, well, okay, like, you can ask around in town, and then, you know, you talk to the sages, and it takes a couple weeks of research, but the last known location was this tomb, and that's the adventure. You know, convince the rest of the party to be, like, in character to go, 
my father was murdered by this man, and his kingdom was usurped by my uncle, and this sword will give me the power to overthrow his corrupt regime. Like, that's the stuff I want to do. I want the players to go, here are my goals for my character. Here's what I want to do. Every, not maybe not every session, but when there's downtime between quests for them to go, oh, I want to try to tackle this. I want to make some kind of resolution on this. And I think original D&D, classic D&D is set up like that with your ninth, your name level ability where it's, you have a goal, you're going to become a baron. That could be an evil baron, that could be a good baron, that could be, you could have a holy order of knights and be King Arthur, whatever, but this is your goal, how do you work towards that? I, I think if you read it out of context and go, oh, I just, I get a, I get a castle at ninth level, that's weird. I, <laughs> I, I could see people being like, new school people looking at that and being like, oh, that's, that's dumb, why do I, I don't want to do that, but it's like, no, that's. The original game was set up as a wargaming campaign, and you're you're working to put your make your mark on the world, and that's something that gets lost in translation, in my opinion. Anyways, thank you, Carl, for bringing that up because <laughs> I'm in the same boat, and it's really refreshing to hear. Um, I think that covers it for the first part of the question. The next question okay, was. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, sorry. I was responding to that, and I, I realized I wasn't glowing when I talked, so hmm. I knew something was wrong. Um, what I was going to say is, I think any time where I'm ahead of the players, in my mind, where the story's going, I'm already starting to railroad them. Yeah. So I think that's the instinct I try to pull back, where uh, I go, oh, I know where this story is going. Once I have those thoughts, then I'm already trying to drive the narrative in a mm -hmm. way that I don't think is... Uh, uh, fair to the player character yeah i want to be a referee i don't want to be the storyteller right i think that's great and um you know it gives another purpose um for the next arc of whatever you're doing and the other easy thing to do is you could just adjust on the fly right mm -hmm. so if the dwarf is the one who found the the mace unless it's an important item to the campaign um you could just change it to a dwarven hammer right uh, but I love the concept of magic items actually meaning something and having bigger purpose than just a plus one sword. Too, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I've been, I'm in the same boat. Going with uh, his second part of the question, or second question, I guess, is uh, if the party doesn't have a cleric, I, this is an easy, like, they just find more healing potions. That's how I do it. Like, I'm not trying, I'm not here to kill them. I'm not trying to kill them. Like, I'm going to challenge them, but I never gun for anybody. Combat rolls, I roll in front of a screen so they can see, yes, I did hit you. I, I rolled a critical hit. Um, and if there's no cleric, you know, maybe I'll make them a little bit tougher. Maybe I'll give them a little extra HP or give them, like, they'll be able to get, I don't know exactly how I do it, but in the past when they haven't had clerics, they have a NPC higher than cleric or they have more health potions. Yeah, I think hirelings would be a, a good way to, to handle that. Um, uh, but also, um, it's one of those problems you run into when you have uh, such an archetype-filled game mm -hmm. where you don't have one of these archetypes um, and you need to fill it. Uh, you don't have a PC for it. I think the the 
henchman rules, hireling rules is a great way of doing that. And that also allows you a role-playing opportunity where they get to know this person. Yeah. Who uh, is essentially a red shirt. I mean, they're just going into the dungeon. They, 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 they might die. Um, but, uh, uh, that makes that can make that an impactful moment where, especially if you get them to like that character, they start becoming invested in that hireling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think the, the common way to do it is, is, is you've got to stock up on healing potions uh, yeah. or some sort of healing magic. I think that's also a fine way to do it. Yeah. I've, uh, I mean, I do the same thing, but probably not to, uh, to the same degree. Um, I've had a situation where they decided not to have a cleric uh, in the party ranks, and uh, you know, I wanted them to figure out the solution to that. I mean, how are you going to? You're going into a dungeon or uh, you know this encounter, and um, without a cleric, what are you going to do? And I may throw a token potion here or there, but I like the I like them going back to town. Finding the you know the, the healer, finding a priest, um, you know, someone that can help them, uh, someone that uh, you know can can heal the party, and then creating that NPC um, that becomes the either you know he he tags along, they hire him, or uh, they visit him on a regular basis. So uh, yeah. same thing. Yeah, the the. <laughs> The old Dragon Quest uh, for NES game where you go to the king and the king will heal everyone and resurrect you. That's right. that sort of thing. Yeah, and it, it's harder with newer players. I think people who haven't played old school D&D or really dived into the history to get them to wrap their head around that because the way games are structured now, it's it's your four buddies. You go into the dungeon and everyone can do this thing. Everyone has all these bases covered. Um, a lot of people my age or younger will see the hireling rules and be like, that's that's weird. Like, why do I want to hire a bunch of dudes? But it's it's a war game. Like it, it originally it's a war game, and and you have this this retinue, this cadre of troops that you're going into a dungeon with. And I I think hiring your band of mercenaries, one of them is you know a priest. And getting to know those mercenaries and and pay them wages, and of course you don't take the priest down with you, or even getting to know the cleric in town and becoming his buddy, and like right. he hooks you up with like <laughs> it's crazy Joshua's discount healing merchandise, <laughs> that sort of thing. I I like that because it, like I was saying earlier, it, it ties you to the world. You have right. a friend in town who you know he's your he's your doctor buddy and you know you're like ah oh, doc i got a i got a sore shoulder and he's like i'm i'm write you a prescription for these or go see this chiropractor it it builds into the world you have more than just the player characters going against obstacles it it becomes a living breathing entity that you all kind of create together and that's really cool <laughs> absolutely agree all right, I think uh, I think that's that. I mean, yeah, uh, for the, for that question, thank you again, Chuck, for the uh, for the uh, the email. Um, if we do emails in the show again, uh, just kind of let you listeners know, um, we'll do them at the end of the show, like this, as an addendum. Um, maybe not all the time, um, but you definitely. Carl has been our social media manager, and he's been doing a really great job on that. Actually, he's been super engaging with like people on Facebook and stuff like that. That's a thing you should check out. Come, uh, come like our page on uh, on Facebook, the Savior Die Immortal Immortal Edition. Um, 
Again, you can find us on Dragon's Foot. Uh, we're fairly active over there. Um, I check it all the time for research. Um, you can join our Discord. I'll leave a link to that in the show. Uh, we have a Twitter. Carl, have you been doing anything with the Twitter? Because I, I haven't. Uh, I'm not involved in the Twitter. I uh, I am involved on Dragon's Foot. I, I post there often and argue about rules. And, and you can all find them under stuff. just Carl. Yeah, I'm not interesting. <laughs> no, I just like I was like, oh, he lucked out. He got just Carl. That's really rare. Um, and I'm on there as well as Crispy. Uh, I'll try to post as much as I can. Um, I think you can also check us out at osrgaming.org. I don't know if we have anything on the D20 Pro Board, not D20, the OD&D Pro Board. We're all over the place. I'm gonna try to compile a list. But, uh, yeah, I'm, th- I'm out there too. Um, I've been quiet for a little bit, but uh, I see Carl all the time. <laughs> yeah, Carl's Carl's on Dragon's Foot all the time. I was like, oh, hey, look, I don't, I don't get out much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that'll be our show for this month. Uh, you know, we'll see you in October. Um, weirdly enough, we did the spooky Halloween themed episode in September. I right, think yeah. I think uh, you guys will be excited for. The next episode, we're going to, again, return to uh, to continuing um, a, a show archetype that uh, previous hosts had set up. And uh, finally, we're going to get to the big, bad, dreaded Gazetteer 4. So you'll have that to look forward to in October. And that'll do it. Uh, I guess good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening. something brother the saber die podcast immortal edition is a production of wild games productions brother it is produced for entertainment purposes only jack all other uses are prohibited dude so be sure to visit them at saberdie.info for more information brother what you gonna do when the saber die podcast runs wild on you Ooh.